so good to see you this morning. Um, if you didn't catch Nick and Sarah introducing me, my name's Jenny. I'm married to Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I get to teach occasionally as well. And I'm super excited to share with you this morning what God has been laying on my heart as I have been studying this passage in John. And um, if you are around here normally, you'll know that we have been going through a series in John. And we're up to John chapter 14. It's been going a little while and it's got a little while to go. But I don't know about you, I'm loving it, and so it's great news. But I want to introduce you this morning to our youngest daughter, Izzy. She's six. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Izzy is a problem solver. If you give her a problem, she will solve it. For example, I found her one day in the lounge with a screwdriver trying to take the bottom off of one of her electronic toys. And I said, Izzy, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm changing the battery. I asked you to do it and you hadn't done it. (laughs) And so I said, well, where did you get the screwdriver from? In case you're wondering why we leave screwdrivers lying around our house. And she said, well, I got the steps and I took them into the garage and I climbed up and I got in daddy's toolbox and I got the screwdriver out. And I said, obviously, that's what you would do. You know, if she doesn't know how something works, give her five minutes to look at it. She'll have a fiddle and she'll have a play. And she'll figure out how it works. This is a picture from the second week of the school holidays. And if you're friends with me on Facebook, you would have seen it. She had asked if she could go out the front of the house and play. And I said, sure, you can go and play. They often like to go and ride their scooters along the front. And I went out to check on her. And she was just standing outside the front gate with her bowl of popcorn. And I thought, this is a bit strange. So I said, Izzy, if you're not playing on your scooter, can you come and play in the back garden, please? I'd rather you weren't just sort of standing around on the street. And she said, but mummy, if I come into the back garden, no one will buy my popcorn. (laughs) And I said, Izzy, why do you want someone to buy your popcorn? Now, we have um, star charts in our house, and a sanction that we have is if, you, um, if you're warned about your behavior and you don't change your behavior, you lose a star from your star chart. And if you lose all your stars in a day, then you lose 50 cents of your pocket money. She hasn't had a great run of it recently. <laughs> and I think she was feeling a bit hard done by in terms of pocket money, and she said, but mummy... I need to sell popcorn so I can get money in my money box. (laughs) So Izzy was out there with her bowl of popcorn and an empty plastic cup trying to make some money out the front of our house. If you have a problem to solve, give it to Izzy and she'll solve it for you. I don't know if she'd be able to solve today's problem though. I'm calling today's message, How to Solve the Problem of the Heart. And in the passage that we're looking at today, the disciples had a problem. Jesus had been preparing them for life without him. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, we've been looking at some of that conversation, some of the things that Jesus has been trying to equip his disciples with for life without him. They've been following him around, spending every moment of their lives with him for the last three years. They've given up everything for him. And he needs to make sure that they know what they're doing once he's gone. So Jesus has taught them so far some characteristics that they should display as followers of Jesus, some things that should help people to know 
who they follow. Nick talked a couple of weeks ago about when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, this lowliest job, the lowest job that you could do. And Jesus taught them, you need to be like this. Selfless service should be a characteristic of a follower of me. And then last week, Daniela and Simon, depending on which service you came to, talked about Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. They talked about his love being active, radical, gracious, undeserved, undignified, uncomfortable. And Jesus says, by this, people will know that you are my disciples. And this week, we're still in that conversation. We're still in this dialogue of Jesus with his disciples, of him helping them to understand what life was going to look like without him, of preparing them for this new way. And so let's read this week's passage. We're in chapter 14, verses 1 to 14, and we're going to read the whole lot this morning. Um, If you've got your Bible, feel free to turn there. The words are on the screen as well, but I'm going to read it to you. So you can just listen if you want to. It's John chapter 14 from verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, And I will do it. Would you pray with me as we get into this incredible passage this week? Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you this morning that we get a glimpse into this this journey that Jesus had with his disciples. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, open our ears to all that you want us to hear, all that you want us to see this morning. We want to soften our hearts before you today, God. We want to hear from you. We want to know all that you have for us. And so I pray that you would help us now to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said that the disciples had a problem. And Jesus suggests that their problem is that their hearts are troubled. If we go back to verse 1. 
Now, I think they were pretty justified if their hearts were troubled, don't you? They'd given up everything to follow Jesus. They'd given up their jobs, their livelihoods, they'd left family, and they'd spent this time following Jesus around. They had literally left everything. And in the last few chapters, Jesus has begun to say some things to them that would have been a little unsettling. He told them a number of times that he was going to go away and that they couldn't come with him. He's told them that he's going to die He's told them that one of them is going to betray him. And he's told Peter that he would disown him. And so I think if I was them, maybe my heart would have been troubled too. The situation they were in was an unsettling one, a frightening one. And we've heard this word troubled before in the last few weeks. And it, it means not like slightly concerned. It means an inward commotion or being struck with fear and dread. And we talked about how it's translated in other places as terrified. This is a deep feeling that they were experiencing. And Jesus calls it out in them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And so even though we may think that they're justified in the state of their hearts in that moment, Jesus doesn't seem to be satisfied with the situation because he's asking them, don't let it be like this. Don't let your hearts be in this state. It's an instruction. He's telling the disciples, you are responsible for the state of your heart. Wow. You are responsible for the state of your heart. We are responsible for the state of our hearts. Isn't it easy to be victims of our circumstances? Isn't it easy to um, blame the way that we feel or the things that we can or can't do on what's happening to us or the situations we find ourselves in? You know, I can't do this because of such and such in my life at the moment. I feel how I feel because this has happened to me. You know, fill in your own blanks, fill in your own alternative sentences to describe that for you. But I was challenged as I thought about this. How often have I been a victim of my circumstances, even in the last week? How often have I discounted myself from doing something or feeling something or acting in a certain way because of what is happening to me or because of how I feel? I wonder how many times in the last two Sundays when we've heard these incredible messages inspiring us to live this life characterized by these things that Jesus wants us to be characterized by. How many times have we said, oh, but I can't do that because if only my life was different, then I could do that better. If only I didn't feel like this, then I could do what they're talking about. But Jesus says here, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he's not the only one that gives this instruction to take ownership of the state of our hearts. In Proverbs 3 verse 5, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And then in 4.23, it says, above all else, guard your heart. This is a message of the Bible that we're to take ownership of the state of our hearts. And so Jesus is clearly saying here, this is not a condition that he expected the disciples to have to live with. 
He did not expect them to struggle on with troubled hearts. They didn't have to be victims to the circumstances that they were finding themselves in, as unsettling as it was for them. And this applies to us too. This is great news. Smile. You're looking really concerned and worried. This is good news. I promise you. And so we don't have to read far to discover what the solution to the problem is. If we go back to verse 1, it's in the very next sentence. The solution to a troubled heart is to believe in Jesus. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You know, we've come across this word believe a number of times already in John. In fact, the Greek word, I'm going to try and pronounce it, and hopefully none of you know Greek, so you can't criticize me, is pistuo. And um, it's found in the New Testament 244 times, which I think is a phenomenal number of times for a word to appear. But what's even more phenomenal is a third of those times are in John. A third of those times are in John. And so it's apparently pretty important to John that we would believe. And not that we would believe in any old thing, but that we would believe in Jesus. And it's so important that he states it as his entire purpose for this book. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe, that same word, pistuo, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's not just that we would believe that Jesus was a good man, or not that we would just believe that Jesus existed, or not that we would just believe that he was a great teacher, or even that we would believe he was a prophet. John wants us to believe that he is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he is God in flesh. That's what John wants us to believe about Jesus. The word means to place your confidence in. Nick talked about it earlier on in the John series. He had a chair or a stool up on the stage and he said it means to place the weight of your life on. So imagine if I'm sitting on a chair, I'm placing the weight of my life on. That's that sense of that word, to believe. Or I thought maybe it was a bit like this. There's a picture, just as Tim was distracted and doing something else. I know it's stupid, I'm never doing it again. But in order to believe in something in this way, enough to put our confidence in it, enough to put the weight of our life on it, we have to spend some time considering it, don't we? I can't sit and hope that this belief is going to magically conjure itself up inside of me. I need to spend some time considering it. As we walked into Gravity Canyon, I had been checking on my phone on the website on the way there. Um, no, this looks like a legit place. This is okay. They're not pirates or cowboys. Um, You know, as we walked in, there were videos playing on the TV screens of other people who had gone before me and had done it, and they looked like they were okay. It looked like they survived the experience. I wasn't aware of any big news stories recently about anyone having a bad accident at Gravity Canyon. And so, as I began to consider these things, my confidence increased. 
And actually, let's face it, at the end of the day, I did a tandem jump, so I was tied to Simon, and so I had no choice. (laughs) Another definition, though, of that word pistuo, that word to believe, is to be persuaded of. So in order to be persuaded about something, I definitely had to be persuaded about this. I actually have to spend time considering it. And Jesus in this passage today gives us some things to consider about him. Some things that I believe will help that belief grow in our hearts just a little bit more. That we can find a solution to the problem of our hearts. The first thing that we find in this passage in those first few verses I'm going to explain is about our future and how our future is certain. Nick and Sarah were talking about, they've got a number of weddings coming up next year actually, not just Abby's wedding or number two, two weddings. In case any of you were wondering if that was an announcement, it wasn't. But a Jewish wedding ceremony in Jesus' time had a really different process to what we know to be a wedding. You know, first of all, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, the first part of it was a betrothal ceremony. So where we would get engaged to someone and maybe have a ring to show that we're committed to that person, they had an entire ceremony for that. And it wasn't just a, oh, I promise to marry you. It was, it was a legal ceremony. There was weight in this ceremony. It was a legal promise to someone that I am going to be married to you. And at that point, they would have had to have got a divorce to have broken it off. This was not a light thing, this betrothal. So they weren't married, but they were legally promised to one another. And they were normally betrothed for about a year. And the groom's job during that year was to go away and to prepare a house for them. And the interesting thing is it was very rare that they would go away and build their own house or buy a house like we would do when we were getting married. The usual custom was that the groom would go back to his father's house and he would build rooms. He would prepare rooms. He would prepare a place for him and his bride to go and live. And another interesting thing about that whole process was the groom wasn't the one who decided when the house was ready. The groom wasn't the one who got to say, yes, I'm done, I'm going back to get my bride. It was the father. It was the father of the groom who said, you're done. Now's the time. Now's the time for the wedding ceremony. And so when the father said it was time, the groom would go and get his bride to actually get married. They would have the ceremony. They would have the wedding feast. And they would begin their life together in this house, in these rooms that the groom had prepared for them in his father's house. Can you hear the similarities in today's passage? And so we can learn from this that our future is secure. Can you hear Jesus is going away to prepare a place for you in the Father's house? The picture he's painting here is one of covenant promise. It's one of certainty. It's one of security. You know, we sang those songs earlier and Nick talked earlier about how we've been secure since the beginning of time. Jesus knew your name. 
God the Father knew your name since before time began. This is talking about how our future is secure for all of eternity. It's not just what's gone before, but it's for all of the future as well. And so when Jesus says, believe in me, he's saying your future in me is secure. Not just, ah, oh, I'm going to prepare this place and if you're ever in town, there'll be plenty of space, pop in and say hi. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and I'm going to come and get you and I'm going to come and take you there to be with me. The security in believing in him, the future is certain. The second thing I think he wants us to consider in this is that the way that you get there is certain. There's no doubt about this. You know, today's passage, we get the title of this mini-series, that I am the way and the truth and the life. And so if any of the disciples were wondering, oh, maybe there's an easier way, maybe there's a different route we could go down, maybe there's another option, this is getting a bit hard, Jesus leaves them under no illusion. I am the way and the truth and the life. There's no other way. There's no wiggle room. There's no other options. There's no other directions that you can look in. He's making it clear that he is the only way to the Father. And how relevant this is in our day. When what the world would tell us is there's actually many ways... There's many ways to find peace. There's many ways to find God. Jesus controversially says, actually, no, there's only one way and it's me. And so the way to get there is certain. And the last thing I think he wants us to consider to allow this belief to rise up in our hearts is who Jesus is, is certain. He says this, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You know, he's told them time and time again who he is with no room for doubt. And he's saying here, if those words aren't enough, don't just believe the words. Believe on the basis of all that I have shown you. And in the book of John alone, We've seen seven miracles of Jesus. We've seen him changing water into wine. He healed the royal official's son. He healed a paralytic. He fed 5,000 people. He walked on water. He healed a man who was blind from birth. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. Seven miracles we got to see in John, but the disciples had seen many more. Many, many, many more than that. And Jesus said, believe on the basis of these works that you have seen. John placed so much emphasis on believing in Jesus because it's critical. It's the most incredible and the most important thing that a person could do in their life. Is to believe in Jesus. Is to believe that he is who he says he is. The most important thing we can do is to put our confidence in him, to put the weight of our life on him, like on that bungee rope. And it's the only way to be saved. Jesus says it here. It's the only way to be saved. He's the only one who can take the ungodly stuff that is in my life away. He's the only one who can make me acceptable to God. He's the only one that has provided a way for me to be totally forgiven. 
But let's remember, he's talking to the disciples here, not in the context of salvation. He's talking here in the context of a troubled heart. He's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. The solution to that is to believe in me. So why? Why did he say that? Was he just uncomfortable with the tension? Was he worried about the level of stress they were under or how uncomfortable it felt for them? Did he just want them to relax a bit? Did he want them just to be able to feel better about themselves? No, I don't think that was it. I think Jesus had something very specific for them to do. And I think Jesus recognized that this feeling of trouble in their heart, this feeling of being terrified, was in danger of causing them to miss out on what he had for them to do. He had a very specific purpose for them. And the last thing he needed for them was to go and hide away and say, my heart is so troubled, I can't do anything. Jesus is gone, what am I going to do now? They'd have totally missed the point if that is what they had done. And Jesus was making absolutely certain here that they were not going to miss out on anything. He needed them to be top of their game. And so there was purpose in this. He wasn't just saying, don't let your heart be troubled so you can feel better. He was saying, I have purpose for you. Don't let your heart be troubled because I have things for you to do. And purpose is powerful. Nick got us in staff meeting this week to do an exercise that in the beginning I thought, oh, this is fun. (laughs) And he sat here, that's awkward. He got us to all go around the room and we had to stand up and say our name and our role. But we had to say what our purpose was. And it was surprisingly powerful. It was surprisingly powerful to stand up and say, this is my purpose here and now. This is the thing that I'm here to do. Not what someone else is here to do. Not what my role says. But this is my purpose. And purpose is a really powerful thing. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. It's interesting that phrase, greater things than these. I've just talked to you about the miracles that are detailed in John. There's seven of them. And the finale of these miracles was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's interesting to think, isn't it? What could be greater than raising a man from the dead? What was he talking about? Well, we know that these miracles weren't Jesus' purpose. It wasn't why he came. They were a characteristic of his mission. They were a way that people would know that he was who he said he was. In John 10, 37, it says, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. And we already looked at the reason John included them in this book. They were a sign. They were a sign to show that Jesus was who he said he was. And by the way, he's saying here in this verse that these miracles should be a characteristic of our life as well. (laughs) That when we pray for people, we should see people healed. That we should see those things as we live our lives as followers of Jesus. But his purpose, his purpose was not to do miracles. His purpose was bigger than that. His purpose was greater than that. John 1.29 says, 
that he was the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. John 4:42 says, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Saviour of the world. And then in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus had a really specific purpose. And so I think the way that verse has been translated is misleading. It says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. In the Greek, that word things doesn't exist. So really it reads... They will do even greater than these. I think the word things here puts our attention on the wrong, the wrong part. The word things here puts our attention on the works that Jesus does. But I don't think that's where he wants our attention to be. I don't think the greater things that he wants us to do are in fact things. I think the greater things he wants us to do, the greater that he wants us to do is actually the greatest thing that we can do. And that is to lead someone to a place by sharing my faith, by sharing my life with them where they would put their faith in Jesus, where they would come to a relationship with him, where they would come to a decision to follow him. That's the disciples' purpose. And by the way, You know, he's talking about more than the disciples here. He says, whoever believes in me. If if you're sat here this morning and you believe in Jesus, this is your purpose. In Acts 2, Peter saw 3,000 people saved in one day. Greater things. By chapter 4 of Acts, it says the number of men who believed had grown to about 5,000. That's pretty phenomenal growth, isn't it? And you might not be able to realistically imagine a moment when you might get to preach to 3,000 people, let alone for those 3,000 to respond and to be saved. But how about instead, close your eyes for a moment and imagine if you keep praying for those three people in your life who don't yet know Jesus. And if you don't have three people that you're praying for, how about you just imagine for a moment that you do have three people and you begin to pray for them. And now imagine that you are regularly sharing your faith with them, living your life characterized by the things that we've learned about in the last few weeks, that your life would demonstrate that you are a follower of Jesus. That you would show them the difference that Jesus makes in your life today that you would faithfully share the stories of God at work. And imagine seeing each of those three come to know and believe in and follow Christ and to be baptised. I believe that's the greater thing that Jesus is talking about here. Now there's approximately 700-ish people that come through this auditorium on a Sunday. So imagine if in the next 12 months, each of us did that. If each of us took this purpose seriously, and we each did that with three people. By the end of year one, we would have 2,800 people coming through this. It wouldn't be this auditorium, would it? 
2,800 people. After year two, if everyone did it again, it would be 11,200 people. And then in year three, if everyone did that again, it would be 44,800 people. And then after five years, we'd run out of people in the Wellington region. More than. And so do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus didn't want anything to get in the way of their purpose. And how often do we let our hearts get in the way of our purpose, of spreading the message of Jesus? Maybe today your heart is troubled, like the disciples' hearts were troubled. Maybe you've got stuff going on in your life that is causing you to feel terrified. There's a direct application here today for you. Maybe there's something else going on in your heart, though, that's hindering you from fulfilling your purpose. You know, my kids are hard work at the moment when their behaviour improves. I'm really stressed with work. I haven't got the capacity for people who need to know Jesus. Once we've finished working on the house, or once we've bought a house, or if only we lived in a friendlier neighbourhood... If I wasn't so shy, or if I knew more people, once I've figured out what I want to do with my life, once I've finished studying, once I find a job, once my children are older, once I get married, once I meet someone, when I have more money, when my life is less stressful, when my walk with Jesus is going better, then I'll reach out. Then I'll share my faith. Then I'll get serious with reaching people who don't yet know Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this in the context of our staff meeting that we had this week as we were sharing with everyone in the room the purpose that each of us had. And I imagined facing Nick or Andy at the end of the year and saying, I've got a hundred reasons why but I haven't fulfilled my purpose this year. I actually haven't even come close. You know, in in that situation, it's just not even an imaginable thought that we would do that in an employment context, is it? That we would come to the end of the year and say to an employer, sorry, I had other things going on. I haven't managed that this year. And yet we do that with something that is infinitely more important than the jobs that we have. Infinitely more important than anything else we will find in our lives. And we feel like it's okay to have excuses. And I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage me today. I'm not, I'm not saying you're so bad. I'm saying Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled because we have a purpose that is great that we need to get on with. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to finish with worship. We're going to do today what Jesus said would heal the disciples of their troubled hearts. Today we're going to take ownership of our hearts, 
I'm going to take ownership of my heart. And we're going to put our confidence in Jesus. That belief, that weight of my life, we're going to put that in Jesus. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to worship Jesus. The way we're going to do that is we're going to sing truth about who he is. And in a moment, I'm going to pray for us and ask that the Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts today. That we would be a community of people who take seriously the purpose that God has given us. And that as we do that, Jesus would be so glorified through us as we live out this life that he has for us. And as we do the even greater than these As we do what Jesus as one man walking on earth could never do by himself. But through us, he can. Through us, he can achieve. And that we would allow God to use us to reach this region for Jesus. Let's pray. And if today you are here and your heart is troubled, if you feel the weight of something that you just don't know the answer to, I'd encourage you, however you want to do it, hold it before God this morning and say, this is, this is what I have, Jesus. This is the state of my heart. And I want to take ownership. I want to take control. But I might just need a bit of help from you today. And maybe today your heart isn't troubled, but... You feel a conviction that maybe there's been things getting in the way of you fulfilling your purpose. I'd encourage you, articulate it in your mind. What is the thing that the Holy Spirit is pinpointing in you today? And hold it out before him. Hold it out before him and I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you are who you say you are, that you are the son of God, that you are alive, that you have conquered death, that you have conquered sin, that you have conquered the enemy and that you rose again and you reign and you rule. And we want to consider you today, Jesus. And as we set our hearts and our minds on you now. I pray that you'd change the state of our hearts. I pray that our hearts would no longer be troubled. Our hearts would no longer be distracted. But I pray, Holy Spirit, you would cause belief to rise up in us today. You would cause faith in Jesus to rise up in us today. That we would be equipped to do all that you have for us. Jesus, we commit ourselves to you again today in Jesus' name. Amen.